You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests, and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. In this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are currently playing or about to open at Film Scene. Our lineup includes Jennifer's Body, which plays Saturday night, September 5th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Next, we'll be discussing The Look of Silence, which opened at Film Scene today and will continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week. Finally, we'll be discussing The End of the Tour, which also opened today and will continue playing at Film Scene throughout this weekend and into next week. Joining us in our third segment to discuss the end of the tour is writer and recent graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, Michael Glaviano. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have Catherine Steinbach, the programming director of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Catherine. Glad to be here. And Chong Min Yu, also a member of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Chong Min. Happy to be here. I'm Leah Vonderheide, Bijou's executive director. I should also mention that all three of us are film studies PhD students in the Department of Cinematic Arts at the University of Iowa. Let's begin with our first film, Jennifer's Body. Chang Min, was this your first time watching this film? Yes. Oh, good. So I'm excited <laughs> to hear what you thought about this cheeky homage to the succubus. Sure. So Jennifer's Body stars Megan Foss as its titular character, and the story unfolds through and revolves around her. High school adolescents cannot resist her seduction, and in front of the screen, the audience is no different. Considering Fox is one of the most desired and coveted stars in Hollywood, thanks to the Transformers franchise. In the beginning, we see our protagonist, Needy, being locked up in a mental world, seemingly insane but still pretty articulate about her own situation. Her flashback brings us back to her high school, setting up a scenario for the ensuing gory fest. As the story proceeds, Needy's best friend Jennifer has been turned into a vampire or a succubus who feeds on young boys' innards to reinvigorate herself. In a sense, the film recaps a conventional young adult film plot, the beautiful but obnoxious cheerleader, the nerdy doki girl with glasses who hasn't realized her own sexual potential, and a sexual drama that gradually emerges out of their tension or camaraderie. So when I was watching the film, I was not sure whether I should take the literal demonization of a beautiful girl as a certain reflection of male anxiety and envy coming from the director and the scriptwriter. But then I found out the film was directed by a female director, uh, Karen Kusama, sorry, and written by an Academy Award-winning woman, Diablo Cody, who is an uh, Iowa graduate, famous for Juno. So, of course, I'm not saying that women's films are necessarily critical or reflexive, insulated from patriarchal values and their consequent paradoxes. However, this reflection of gender does raise some interesting questions. Is this film an ironic take on the whole YA genre? If so, what are the things the director and the writer attempt? 
I'm tempted to say it is still too close to mainstream filmmaking to subvert its norms, but maybe I should yield to my fellow banterers, both stunning. <laughs> well, go on. <laughs> <laughs> Patriarchal views. <laughs> Delightful. <laughs> uh, I mean, this film is so much of a spoof that I didn't... Uh, it was a, yeah, it was a parody. I mean, it was a parody of these types of tropes. Um, so the kind of, you know, exploitation of the female body that ensued within that was all kind of swept up in the, in the parody of the film itself. I didn't, I didn't find it particularly problematic. I don't know. Catherine, what do you think? Am I being too easy on them? No, I mean, I don't, I didn't really find it super problematic either, especially because it is doing this, it's doing a lot of clever things with, what we are very familiar with, which is the kind of boy as monster, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the girl is in jeopardy because the boy is the monster and yet she can't help but love him. Um, And although we do have a kind of that traditional relationship because of the strange, uh, you know, pseudo-sexual relationship that Needy and Jennifer have, um, so we do have both kind of a traditional female character and a subversive female character um, who are kind of constantly at each other, um, which I find to be, I don't know, intriguing and pleasurable. Um, yeah, I think that the fact that m- most of the guys in this movie are just completely inept um, <laughs> is is a pretty pleasurable part of this horror movie, um, especially since... Uh, women are given such a hard time in the horror genre. <laughs> Gosh, so much screaming and running and dying. So, but I think sex has a somewhat negative or ambivalent or ambiguous connotation in this film. Either you'll be eaten or you're going to have a telepathy of your best friend feasting on someone, like when you are having sex. So is this a moral tale? Of course, not in the sense of Eric Homer. But I'm thinking about why the film was slammed in its initial release. It's not a bad film, but its stance on many issues seems very, very ambivalent. Well, it certainly plays on the um, the kind of joke about the the like virtuous virgin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that the whole beginning of the film is and the transition of Jennifer into the demon is because this band wants to sacrifice her, <laughs> sacrifice a virgin. Right. And of course she's not and, um, and hasn't been. And, and why would they assume she is like what, who, you know, um, all of those assumptions are turned around. So, but it's not necessarily, yeah, it's not necessarily like a glowing tale of sexual health. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and and clear psychological, um, you know, joy. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure quite what to make of of the the sexual paradox in it. Uh, I, I don't I don't know either. I mean, there's lots of so if there's certain horror tropes of once the woman is no longer a virgin, then she's immediately killed. Right? If Scream has taught me anything, that's yeah, what I know. Um, <laughs> So there's there's interesting things going on in this where she one she's already not a virgin and so instead of her having to suffer for for that for her lack of chastity it's it's ultimately all the men that have to suffer for that because they have you know 
accidentally tried to sacrifice someone who's not a virgin. So the result is that all these men then are going to be terrorized. So that's a nice flip. Um, the other thing is like if, you know, the Amanda Seyfried uh, character, Anita or Needy, uh, when she loses her virginity again, she doesn't suffer the consequences. It's yeah. the man in the relationship that suffers the consequences. So it's doing like lots of constant flipping of the tropes. Um, so that there, and there's so much flipping that in some ways the movie, when you're watching it, it feels like a standard horror film. But once you really start dissecting it, you realize like every at every single turn something's been inverted, and so it's a bit more clever than than maybe the standard horror. Yeah, definitely. I know I don't like the film <laughs> because maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a male audience, so I don't feel you're like, uncomfortable when yeah, the, the tropes are flipped. <laughs> no, no, yes, maybe, but like I mean, Megan Fox to you know and throw me in a sense, but I was sort of make uncomfortable by her presence in this film, like this devilish beauty. Or one not. So I, I don't I don't find a like comfortable position when I was watching the film. So yes and no. I don't know. Well then so. that, that would tell me that the film was a success. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well and the film isn't I think part of the charm of the film is that Megan Fox isn't really idealized um in a lot of ways. I mean, the the great joke that I think is even in the trailer that Needy is telling her boyfriend, Jennifer is evil. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, like like evil, like demon evil. <laughs> he's like, oh. Yeah. Well, because she's she's a jerk from the beginning, yeah. right? Um, and she's beautiful, but, but she's so mean. Um, <laughs> and so you get to see her also be kind of deconstructed as an icon and as a like lusted after creature mm-hmm. because she is this demonic presence that um that everyone has to fight in in the end um i don't know um so it it, it does kind of take her iconic status as the kind of mm. action sweetheart star or is she a sweet- i don't know i haven't seen transformers yeah i've only seen that car scene the like opening car scene with her and Transformers. Yeah, she's yeah. nice. That's how that, you. Right? That's how you teach the male gaze and. <laughs> so I almost feel this film is so much influenced by Quentin Tarantino's philosophy of revenge. Our poor protagonist is going to be empowered supernaturally to exact her vengeance. Granted, this is a film about a vampiric girl, but still I cannot help but shudder when I see this kind of plot twist. I despise Tarantino's inglorious bastards. <laughs> uh, by the way, so do you have the same feeling? I was, so responding to the idea of this being a revenge film, I, I was actually expecting her her attack on men to be more motivated by their sexual advances. And instead, it's actually all motivated by her own sexual advances, which is another way in which the movie is a little bit surprising. I thought it would align itself more with um, something that's a more recent film than Jennifer's Body, The A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which was the vampire Iranian-American film that came out last year where something similar is going on. It's a sort of a female vampire succubus, but she specifically goes after men who are in the process of... of of, you know, putting themselves upon women um, who are not welcoming their advances. So, but this was just sort of like, she went after 
everybody. She seduced <laughs> them. She took advantage of men that she, who were not in the moment in any way interested in her and sort of lured them in that way. So I thought that was, I don't know. I didn't really know what to make of that dynamic. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a uh, a revenge film of a kind. Um, but yeah, I guess I can't, I, I guess I um, identify it with maybe a Tarantino-esque kind of um, self-congratulating, kind of yeah, snappy, exactly. snappy dialogue and, and gore and stuff like that. Um, very campy references and all that business. Um, but it's so pleasurably turning around some of these expectations that that I can't help but but like it way more than than some of Tarantino's kind of just I mean he, the guy just swims in stereotypes so oh, yeah. much that I that I can, a lot of it I can't quite get on board with. I think he's going downward. But okay, that's uh It's going down in flames. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um let's talk about our favorite YA film about sex because we are talking about so many YA films about sex in these few weeks. Last week we have The Diary of a Teenage Girl. This week we have Jennifer's Body. Next week we're going to have Kiss. So what's your favorite? Um, I, that's a question. Um, <laughs> does My Girl count? No. Oh, that's It's a coming of age tale. Yeah. I don't think anybody sleeps together though. In My Girl too, right? Well, that's <laughs> that <doesn't> count. <laughs> uh, uh, that and um, oh, I had something else in mind, but now I don't remember what it was. Catherine, this is like your genre, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I always fall back on my '80s obsessions, so I can't. I'm I'm totally just going outside the realm of the ones that we've reviewed recently, and and. Uh, and are going to review. I haven't seen kids in such a long time that mm-hmm. I can't even remember. And and it's a pretty, pretty brutal uh, film. But uh, I gotta. I mean the the John Hughes films. The oh the you know. <laughs> well, my favorite one is John Hughes written some kind of wonderful, um, which is less punishing about oh. about teen sexuality or maybe a classic maybe like Splendor in the Grass teen oh. sexuality. Amazing. That's a, that's a good great one. Choice. Non-judgmental. Yeah. Yeah. I've been showing clips of that this past week, in fact. Yeah, yeah, that's one of my all-time favorite movies. But So yeah, either either that or my, my John Hughes classics. Um, I like Mysterious Game. Oh yeah, that's a oh, very I good. I never got to see that. Mm. All right, we will uh, end there. Again, Jennifer's Body plays Saturday night, September 5th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. For more information about Bijou After Hours, please check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. After a quick break, we'll return to discuss the look of silence. Hello, this is RoboProf Kimber McLeod, faculty advisor to CareUI, and I'm here to wish you a happy 30th anniversary as an FM broadcasting radio station. Congrats. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film, The Look of Silence. Catherine, 
I'm hoping you can give us some context for this difficult documentary before we begin our discussion. Yes, here we go. Uh, The Look of Silence is director Joshua Oppenheimer's companion piece to the incredible 2012 The Act of Killing. Both documentaries delve into mid-1960s communist purges in Indonesia, the death squads that formed, and the legacy of mass executions that haunts the the current government. The purges are still celebrated, and leaders who ordered or committed atrocious acts gained power, reputation, and wealth. The act of killing focused on two main death squad leaders and their experiences of the acts they committed, experimenting with reenactment and role reversal in order to change their view of the events. This film provides what we were seeking more of in the first film, a look from the other side, that of the victims and their families. The Look of Silence follows an Indonesian eye doctor, Adi Rukun, who seeks answers about his older brother, Ramli, who was brutally killed by the Snake River death squad. We witness a man as he attempts to both literally and figuratively change the vision of those he encounters and questions. Unfortunately, we get the same response from many. The past is past. Almost none feel responsibility or regret. Hatred of communism is so entrenched in the history and rhetoric of the nation at this point that these deaths are a matter of course. But where did this hatred come from? As one of the death squad leaders succinctly puts, we did this because America taught us to hate communists. So to begin our conversation, I want to ask how you guys felt about the balance of perpetrator-victim point of view in this film versus the act of killing. Uh, Which point of view do you guys think is more important to the director, if we can speculate? So I watched these films in reverse, um, I watched The Look of Silence first and then I followed up and watched The Act of Killing because I, had, I hadn't seen it in the last, uh, when it first came out. Um, they're very different films. Mm-hmm. Not just because it's changing perspective from uh, the killer to the victim, the aggressor to the victim, um, but because the stuff that's going on in The Act of Killing is just so bizarre. I mean, it's mm-hmm. such an an unbelievable examination of human behavior and, and uh, the obsession of image and, and image making and how that gets tied up in the ability to participate in a mass murder. Um, this film is, feels much more straightforward in terms of let's explore a horrible situation, talk to the victim about his feelings or his, and his family about what they went through Let's see how the aggressors feel decades later. Um, it feels much more in the vein of a of a you know a humanitarian documentary, very well made. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. one of the best of its kind. But it it doesn't have that s- same impact of the act of killing because the act of killing is just it's this whole other beast. I mean, uh, the main protagonists in that film are just you can't believe what they're saying. Like you just cannot wrap your head around what they're saying and what they're doing through these reenactments. I think yeah. uh, the look of silence is uh, closer to the traditional kind of documentary uh, who, which witnesses the suffering of the victims, mm-hmm. like S21, which is a documentary about Khmer Rouge. So it's mm-hmm. like let the victims talk and feel and tell you their story. <coughs> and I think... To use your word, Catherine, I think the act of killing is more impactful, mm-hmm. and so it and it's 
it accentuates that sensuous aspect of these experiences,、mm-hmm. which is, I mean, which is becoming a thing right now because、uh, Oppenheimer got his degree from Harvard, so Harvard is doing this. With interesting sensuous ethnography experiments with a lot、mm-hmm. of、uh, materials. For example, the、uh, the latest film they made before this was the Viathan, the documentary about、mm-hmm. fishing. Bef- not the Russian film, the Viathan. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like yeah. So I mean, the act of, the act of killing gives you more that bodily sensation. That's something that you're not very familiar with, and, it, and but. In a sense, it is so. I mean, you can feel how traumatic it would be if you are in that situation. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I think, I agree that the act of killing is so much more surreal, especially with the reenactments and、um, the kind of even dance sequences that are going on, and、um, it's it's、uh, discomforting in a whole different kind of way. Um, and the look of silence is more of a traditional point of view piece、um, in a documentary. It's it's it is f- more familiar in that way, and so maybe you know Oppenheimer strategically plans. He knows that he's done research on this for years and years, and, and so he has to create a certain amount of <laughs>、uh, of film footage, but. At the certain point, the decision was made. Like, oh no, we have to put the perpetrator stuff up front, and we have to do it in a way that's that's completely,、um, you know, defamiliarizing. Because otherwise, it won't. Maybe it won't be as impactful. You know, if if we just use a kind of a traditional victim point of view piece.、Um, I don't know. I think it's I think it's smart, definitely、uh, of Oppenheimer.、Um, But it definitely makes for a, a difficult process that you have to go through with both of these films, because then、um, you're put in this kind of strange position of, of feeling more comfortable with the victim's point of view、um, than with. Yeah, you know. because in traditional、uh, documentaries, you don't see、um, the point of view of the. Pu- Perpetrator that often, like you、mm-hmm. wouldn't see the story、yeah. from their point of view because that only comes up in the confrontations. Yeah, like、uh, the victim wants to hear the truth from the perpetrator. That's where you will see the、mm-hmm. the murderers or the aggressors. But like、uh, the act of killing, make that into a film, which is.、Mm-hmm. Very subversive in that sense. Oh yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I can't think of any other film that's done anything quite like this. Because in the look of silence, when we see family members or, or, or people who had participated in the killings, they are behaving in a way that I think we're much more familiar with after atrocities happen, which is the denial or the sense of it wasn't my responsibility. We get lots of I was just following orders,、mm-hmm. um, things that. Are are almost standard for these types of、uh, narratives. So to have something like the act of killing, where where not only are people saying, "Yeah, that's what I did," they're not even they're not defensive about it. They're not justifying it. There, it's just a pure celebration of their of what they're calling their history.、Um, yeah, this is what I did. This is how I participated. These are how I killed these people.、Um, where do we get that kind of attitude、yeah. uh, expressed? Yeah, but but I also want to point out something that is very stunning about the look of silence is that you see 
the constant danger and threat to the victims. Mm-hmm. Like it is still going on. It is persisting. Mm-hmm. Like you, like he has to keep his identity as a secret. Mm-hmm. And you see so many anonymous persons in the ending credits. Like they yeah. just cannot say who they are, and just like oh, because someone is going to go after us. So it's like I feel like although yes, we do see that tra- that, that traditional confrontational format, but at the same time. Um, I think these confrontations go deeper than usual. Like yeah. it's like very true, like uh, bodily threat. Like you can feel from the image. Yeah, definitely. And one of my questions about about the look of silence, and that goes right off of your point, Changmin, is that a lot of people's response is the wound has healed. Don't reopen it. Um, and it can be like exasperated, pleading, or even like a threatening tone that that phrase is delivered. Um, but if the history is truly celebrated, why would we witness this response from victims and perpetrators alike? Like why it kind of points out the performance of the celebration of the history, right? When really they don't want to talk about it and they don't want to talk about implications and they don't want to, you know, like they don't want to go into politics, quote unquote, (laughs) Mm -hmm. because, they really do like there's there's a performance of celebration that's happening instead of a, a maybe a true feeling of of yes let's be proud of all of the death you know um, well it almost seemed like in the look of silence the the, the figures who had themselves murdered mm-hmm. people said they actually still own that and and celebrate that it's the families it's the mm-hmm. The, the wife, it's the sons, it's the, the daughter who seem to be able to comprehend mm-hmm. how, how awful and outrageous this is. So it seems like the, the look of silence does kind of get into that a bit more. That mm-hmm. there's something about the men who actually participated do actually, they seem like they're, they're happy to, to own it um, to a certain extent. I mean, it's not, obviously it's not the same as the act of killing, but... It's more the the other family members and the the next generation of of, of these people. I yeah. think the look of silence scales back its provocation because uh, the film wants to understand these perpetrators. They uh, uh, the director wants to see the ambivalence, the ambiguity mm-hmm. behind their you know tough guy kind of appearance like, like gangster oh thing. gangster mm-hmm. thing like oh everybody respects me i'm the leader i'm like i i would tell them what they should do that kind of sentiment so i feel like you see after a while when these perpetrators get old they seem to have a different reaction to the questions Mm-hmm. Like it's not that straightforward anymore. It's not like oh, we, we can just celebrate our massacre of this communist. It's more about oh, I don't want to bring this up again because it's political, and I think there might be something wrong in what I did, but I don't want to recognize that. Yeah. Okay, so unfortunately we have to uh, stop there. But again, The Look of Silence opened at Film Scene today and will continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week. For a complete list of showtimes, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. 
Before we move on to our third and final film, let's check on the weather. It's currently 90 degrees in Iowa City. This evening, partly cloudy with a low of 70. Tomorrow, Saturday, is mostly sunny with a high of 92 degrees. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. Our final film is The End of the Tour. Joining us to discuss the film is writer and recent graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, Michael Glaviano. Welcome, Michael. Hi. Great to be here. (laughs) The end of the tour begins where most narratives about David Foster Wallace end his sudden and untimely death from suicide in 2008. Wallace rose to fame in 1996 with the publication of his novel Infinite Jest. Wallace's 1,079-page tome and the critical acclaim that accompanied it created quite the stir in literary circles, turning reluctant readers into fawning admirers, conservative critics into panting fanboys, (laughs) and fellow authors into puddles of self-doubt, self-deprecation, and apparently self-hatred, or so Jesse Eisenberg's portrayal of writer Thomas Lipsky would have us believe. Which returns us to the film at hand. The end of the tour is an adaptation of Lipsky's memoir titled, Although Of Course You End Up Becoming Yourself. Lipsky's book is about a five-day road trip he experienced with David Foster Wallace at the end of Wallace's Infinite Jest book tour in 1996. Lipsky spent his time with Wallace as a journalist for Rolling Stone, but the assigned article never made it into the pages of the magazine. Instead, Lipsky published his memoir in 2010, after Wallace's highly publicized death. Much of Lipsky's novel is direct transcripts of his conversations with Wallace, and the adapted film likewise follows this format, resulting in 106 minutes of rambling and unrelenting dialogue (laughs) about literature, music, movies, the desire to be famous, depression, dogs, disco dancing, and myriad other topics that plague the hearts and minds of straight white men of middle-class America. Before I completely tip my hand, I have to admit that I have no relationship with the works of David Foster Wallace. I've never even picked up a copy of Infinite Jest. So I'd like to start by asking you, Michael, about your understanding and appreciation of Wallace's writing, and then I'd like to discuss how this film informs or influences your opinion of him. Um, my first encounter with the, um, with his works was Oblivion, which was his last collection of stories, um, and I made it about 20 pages into the first story, which is called Mr. Squishy, and I threw the book across the room and swore that I would never read him again. Um, <laughs> and then I read, I think the Federer essay, Federer's religious experience, um, by accident, not realizing it was him. And I was like, oh, this is great. Like, who is this guy? And I was like, oh, it's that guy that wrote that book that I hate. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I read his nonfiction. Uh, then I read, which was all I loved. Um, then I read Infinite Jest, which uh, I would say is uh, about 20% total garbage and 80% life-savingly good, um, and then made it through the fiction, the rest of the, the uh, short fiction. Um, as for the way the... the and, and, and I should say Oblivion has a story called Good Old Neon that I teach every opportunity that I have, um, and I, like, I always introduce it as, like, if ever a short story has saved human lives, that's the one, um, which is 
very bombastic, but I really believe it. Um, anyway, so as for the, the way uh, the film informs my opinion of him, it totally does not. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I have read the sort of the of, uh, the book that it's based on, which is um, a lot of transcripts, and um, and I, I like my experience of watching the film was like absorption was impossible because I was constantly measuring it against my experience of reading that text, which I've read a couple of times. It's like comfort reading for me to hear like, uh, as a writer, it's just like you're, you're reading about someone else struggling to be a writer is like candy. Um, and so, uh, yeah, um, there's a lot of, I think, I think that there's like a sexual rivalry pro- plot in the film that just doesn't exist um, in the book. Um, and I would say that like, oh, maybe it was added in and it's like relatively factual, except that like there's stuff in the book that, Wallace says, please, like, keep this off the record, and he prints it anyway. So it's like, if it was, if there was something that interesting um, going on in the, uh, going on in that, on that road trip, I think it would have made it into the book. Um, So my suspicion is that the the sexual rivalry component is, like, was just put in to give the film structure, which then informed the way the entire film was written, which was very much about um, this sort of contest of urination or whatever <laughs> uh, and uh so so yeah it, it has no influence on my opinion of, of the guy or his work well and evidently wallace's family including his widow uh has vehemently objected to this film and if i am to believe that wallace is accurately portrayed in jason siegel's performance of him i would have to agree that wallace would have absolutely opposed the use of his interview uh or this use of his interview with lipsky so uh, would you agree with that? And if so, did that also uh, shade your reception of the film? Uh, I can't speak to what he would have wanted, obviously, but I sure doubt it that he would <laughs> that we, he would have been cool with this. Um, the um, I mostly objected to. I mean, like to to a certain extent, I'm a participant in the um, in the hagiographic cash grab uh, that that came after his death. Um, like I read the Pale King um, with almost no qualms, you know, like, um, so, so it's like, yeah, I, I think, I think the the biggest beef that I had with the film was the, was the, the sort of fanciful, uh, plot, uh, inventions. So Catherine Changmin, I'm assuming you're in the same boat with me of just having no relationship to Lipsky's book, no relationship to Wallace's writings. Is that true? True story. Am I? Yeah. True. Okay, <laughs> it's a fair assumption. But I did, I did, I must say, I kind of liked the, I mean, I, certainly I don't think that it reflected poorly on David Foster Wallace's persona, um, the film, the, the way the film kind of constructs things, but it sure does David Lipsky, right? Because David Lipsky seems to be this kind of jealous, petty, just squirming constantly um kind of competitor right and and so and maybe that is the only persona that Jesse Eisenberg can can bring to he's like well I'm bringing this to the table <laughs> um so you know because that kind of fits into his other performance uh well, yeah and have you, uh, I have to share then this A.O. Scott review about Eisenberg's performance in the New York Times review, uh, because I agree, it's, it's everything I've felt about Eisenberg, but I've never really been able to articulate so clearly. Scott writes, quote, in real life, David Lipsky might be a great guy, but on the screen he is played by Mr. Eisenberg. 
which means that his genetic material is at least 25% weasel. <laughs> End quote. That was for you, Catherine. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but I'm not even sure if he means that as an insult. I mean, I, Eisenberg does tend to play these characters similarly. Uh, he has a certain persona. Um, so, yeah, who knows if that's fair to Lipsky. Do you, does, do you, did anyone have a problem with... Eisenberg's performance in general or Siegel's performance in general of David Foster Wallace. I mean, some people are really heralding these as great performances that these two actors are now being considered our generations, you know, great among the great actors of our generation. Um, is that fair? Well, I, I do like the film, but I, I have this problem of seeing Wallace in this film as this writer philosopher figure. Like, oh, everything he says is so right mm-hmm. and so intelligent and so profound. I don't know if that comes out in reading of his books. To- um, uh, again, it's like, it's like he, he has this, this, this sort of, in, in the books, this sort of twin personality where he like, or it's like it, all sorts of, there are all sorts of facets. Like one is like the, the over-the-top folksiness, which uh, I find cringeworthy. Um, the, the, like, the $5 words traded out for $10 words, which I find cringy. Um, and then there's just like a real, I don't know, a real insight into what it's like to be, um, frankly, uh, uh, an upper middle class white dude. Um, and that's, I mean, and that, that was definitely a limitation of his. Um, but uh, I think that, for better or for worse, he, he saved the lives of some of those upper middle class white dudes. <laughs> <laughs> so did any, I mean nobody wanted to talking about this very particular demographic watching yeah two two white guys drive around Minnesota. I I felt like I wanted to bang my head against the wall sometimes because their conversations <laughs> just felt completely out of touch with something that yeah. is actually deep and meaningful about anything. <laughs> I don't know. I just it's it felt very narcissistic. Uh, well, but in a way that's good, right? That that it's portraying like Lipsky. I, I can't imagine watching this movie and coming out of it thinking that like, oh, it's totally functional uh to be a writer and and <laughs> and uh it's not about for to a certain extent this kind of petty competitiveness where you are constantly measuring yourself against the next big thing and so then it becomes about jockeying for position. And so I sort of think that that's a good, it, it kind of tears down the facade of David Foster Wallace at the same time as it is a film about him and, and using someone like Jason Siegel, who is an affable guy. I mean, it's really difficult to hate him. Um, so it, it, in a way is constructing him and tearing him down at the same time, this this like writer man, right? Um, it's It's kind of... Doing a dual job. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like the companion piece to this film is Francis Ha. <laughs> you see my point. And like, <laughs> I actually said at least Noah Baumbach like puts a woman at the center of yeah, his movie. Exactly. So and like there's something that is very weaselly yeah. and New Yorky about this film. Like you would imagine oh, all these great writers living in New York just talking about nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> so like and that's so great. That is so profound. And I don't I don't I don't know. I just cannot accept that kind of worldview in a sense. Although I don't hate this film, but at the same time it's just like, God, you guys are so distanced 
from this world. Like, and I felt like that distance came from a place of entitlement. Yeah. Of just total unadulterated entitlement, which really rubbed me the wrong way. So I would love it if somebody could counter that feeling that I'm having. Um, I would say, I mean, again, this was, this was, this film was probably not for me, but um, I'll say that like the text that the film is based on is very much about like the difficulty of making meaning from experience. Uh, but the source of dramatic tension is so much about the pettiness and grossness and entitlement um, and, and those two things seem really at odds for me. And so, so I'm not saying that they're not there. They're totally there. Um, and I'm not saying that he didn't contain that because he totally did. Um, but, but yeah, so I, I think it's just a function of, of the form itself um, really steering us away from like what was valuable about that book. So it's the, it's the film is sort of bringing out – it's, it's having a hard time dealing with certain tensions that are in the book and in the film that kind of gets flattened out in a way. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that like the book has like a really intense like rivalry tension sort of vibe, um, but, they're in, but it's like incredibly subtle verbal jibes. Um, and uh, I think the director – or whoever was adapting it saw that saw that that would be difficult to adapt and 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 ratcheted it up to eleven. Or it was just like let's just put a woman in there yeah. that they'll fight over. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Or several. There will be several women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Joan Cusack will be there, and yeah. she'll make Leah happy. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's take a quick break, and when we return, we'll continue our discussion of the end of the tour with guest Michael Glaviano. Support for KRUI is brought to you in part by The Broken Spoke. They offer new and used bicycles, cycling accessories, and also service a variety of bicycles. They can be found in Iowa City at 602 South Dubuque Street. For more information, visit thebrokenspoke.com or call 319-338-8900. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. We're currently discussing the end of the tour with guest Michael Glaviano. So one of the things we've been talking about is the fact that this film was adapted from a book. And I one of my questions that I'm grappling with is just why is Lipsky's book being adapted at all? Why isn't one of Wallace's books being made into a film? Uh, And so far, only one of his books that I know of has been adapted for the screen brief interviews with Hideous Men, which was John Krasinski's directorial debut in 2009. Um, I did not enjoy that film. (laughs) 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 So I don't know. Uh, But is Wallace's uh, own work, is it just too difficult to adapt? Uh, Or does this recent film suggest that there is more interest in Wallace himself uh, perhaps than in his actual writing. Do you have any thoughts about that, Michael? Oh boy, do I. Uh, <laughs> so a couple of things. One is that is that uh, Wallace sold the rights to the film rights to Infinite Jest with total confidence that it would never get made. So that's definitely like I mean he, he at the very least he was like uh, confident that that wouldn't that that wouldn't happen um, or, or that it would be very difficult. Um, and I think that that definitely the interest in his in him as a character. Um, um, not not that it's exceeding the interest in the books, but it's a definitely definitely like a separate thing, um, and and the the sort of reputation that he has as like the the, the hero of um, a lot of very annoying, very arrogant young men um, comes from the fact that he he did have the like thousand page novel. It's like it's like all the all the like macho signifier, all the macho literary signifiers. He ticked them all off one by one, right? So it's like huge words and like um, structural play and like. Um, 
Uh, yeah, and, and just the, the... He's a tennis aficionado. So, so yeah, I think that's all I got. <laughs> what about his nonfiction, though? Like, I would imagine that his nonfiction might be easier to grapple with in adaptation than would be like a, the big, you know, you got a thousand minutes, I'm going to show you this infinite jest adaptation. I don't see how that could work, but a minute um, per page. Yeah. In your <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, there's like 900 words a page. It's like tiny print too. Oh my God. Um, anyway, that's terrifying. Um, so let's talk about the talkiness of this film. So I'm a lover of all things, Eric Romare. The second time he comes up in today's <laughs> show, uh, I'm not at all opposed to films determined by dialogue, uh, but I struggled. I struggled with the conversations in this, as we already discussed. I struggled with just the themes, the topics. Um, some of this apparently can be attributed to the fact that it's being adapted from a book that can can handle the tensions better than just the flat image. Um, but what generally? What did you guys think? Were you did you kind of go along with the conversations? Were you right alongside them in the car, fine with the meanderingness of of the film, or? Did anybody else struggle with that? I thought it was pretty rewarding how awkward it was. Mm -hmm. Um, I was definitely kind of with them in the sense that, um, that how, how are either of them supposed to respond to each other and how are either of them supposed to get at any sort of real connection with each other, uh, especially given the competitive nature immediately that's kind of set up, um, uh, in the movie at least, um, uh, so I, I sort of, I didn't have a problem with the talkiness. I actually really enjoyed the talkiness of the film. Um, but again, I, I liked it because it was so cynical about writing, I think. Um, and, and because I have no, you know, barometer when it comes to David Foster Wallace. So I kind of liked that it was so weird and so like questioning the nature of this icon anyway, um, with its strangeness and, you know. Well, I think for me, the problem is that the conversations are not awkward enough. Really? Yeah. (laughs) I think they are too smooth. They are too on the surface. Like it's not ironic. It's not self-aware enough. It doesn't give you that many levels of interactions. So I feel like, Yes, every time Wallace says something, it is so deep, so profound. There's no, you know, <laughs> there's just no corners to turn. Like, just like, oh, yes, life, meaning, depression. So that's how I feel about those conversations. So I do, I do appreciate some of those awkward moments in the film. But at the same time, I feel like I don't know why the director has to put the sexual plot in. Yeah. So I feel like that definitely waters down some of the interesting conversations they could have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, to a certain extent it was like the, the piece was going to be the piece that the, the Rolling Stone piece was going to be like this platform for his like thoughts about things. So it's like, uh, it wasn't really Lipsky's, it was Lipsky's job to keep him talking like the real Lipsky. Um, not his job to be a good interlocutor that's fun to watch on on in a film, um, and so that I mean, and I think that's a, another reason why why they went for the the sexual rivalry rivalry subplot uh, or plot actually. Um, but um, and and I but I did really really relish the moments of awkwardness. The the at the as they say goodbye, the like 
Lipsky goes in for a hug, and Wallace just like sticks out his hand, and he, and and Lipsky's just like, yeah, okay. It, it was just it was excruciating. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not. I haven't really thought about the relationship between. I know that there's actually been a pretty decent piece written about this in the New Yorker, New York Magazine, about the relationship between the journalist and the subject, and how this film actually really accurately portrays that. That you are you're having to sort of prop them up but then also ask some probing questions but then prop them up again and so it would have been really fun to watch a movie where Lipsky and Wallace really argue and dispute about the big questions in life but it's fair to say I mean Lipsky's that's not what Lipsky's there to do he's not there to give his opinion about anything so there is no natural conflict in that kind of relationship um and I so yeah for me then the, then I just wondered why is this a movie like why not just leave it on the page yeah I mean ex- except for the the the, the privacy um, violations like that that I mean if you were gonna if you were gonna invent something I mean he's going going through the medicine cabinet you know what I mean it's just like mm-hmm. um, yeah oh I lost my train of thought that there's <laughs> tension in that that there's yeah. conflict in that yeah totally totally mm-hmm. um, yeah it's gone <laughs> hey no. There's this kind of softness about that film that is, I know, a little bit disturbing to me because I feel like it is too sweet. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, every time, you know, uh, Lipsy goes to bed, the dog has to come into his room <laughs> to lick him. Just like this, you know, those moments are just too editorializing for me, yeah. I think. One thing that I'm curious about, um, and Michael, maybe you can address this since I haven't read the Lipsky book, um, is the is the the breakdown that they have, the fight in in the book that they eventually do start be- probing each other, like, why do you perform this way? Well, why do you perform this way? You know, there's this kind of, and they have kind of a snit, and then they make up, but it's like they do kind of have this tra- like transparent performative exchange at one point in the film. And is that in the book? Yeah, it totally is. And it's, and it's the most compelling part of the book is like, is because you really can feel, um, Wallace does not do a very good job of deflecting. He like, he goes, goes for flattery, um, and it, and just crashes and burns like Lipsky calls him on it um, immediately. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating. Um, and then, uh, and then Wallace transitions into this sort of macho, like hypersexual character, and that's how he successfully deflects because he's constantly def- deflecting questions away from um, AA stuff, where he's like trying to like you know like protect his own sobriety and protect the sobriety of uh, other people and other people's privacy. Um, and so that and that stuff is super interesting to me, um, but apparently not to the adapters. Well, and and in that scene, in this sort of uh, you know, other than fighting about a girl, the scene where they're. Lipsky's finally started to ask him questions about his sobriety and, and, and possible heroin use and, and Wallace goes on the defense in a pretty big way. I, I ended up still fine as much as that should be this, you know, penultimate scene. I found it almost offensive um, because it gives Wallace as a character. And again, I don't know how this all plays out in Lipsky's book or how it played out in real life or how, what Wallace really thought about this, but it gives him a platform to say things like, uh, I was depressed, and it wasn't a chemi- it was not a chemical yeah. imbalance. It was not uh, an abuse of drugs. It was not any of these things. It was 
the culmination of growing up in America or something like that. And I found that deeply offensive when you think about the fact that he does die from suicide. He did have depression. He did most likely have a chemical imbalance. He was on medication that he went off right before. Yeah. And and suicide is this, it's this, you know, it's often preventable uh, if, if people can get the right treatment. And so I found that moment, I realize it's, in the past, mm-hmm. um, but I found it because this film is now giving him yet another platform to yeah. say this, where it sounds profound in the moment. I found that icky. Yeah, and it's and it's presented, and the film seems to be self-presenting. Um, A.O. Scott had a really generous reading of it, which was like it was like this very meta, like we can't know, and, but like, this, <laughs> uh, but it seems to me that this the film is presenting itself as a biopic, and one of the most rewarding like bio, like biographical excursions I've I've gone on uh, with regard to Wallace is comparing that conversation against the biography, the DT Max biography, um, because he lies like crazy uh, in, in the book that this film is based on. And, and, and like there are lies embedded in the film now, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 if, and it seems, I mean, he's not going to cop to having a chemical imbalance in that interview, of course, but in retrospect, yeah, it, it's, it's to reproduce that denial is, seems very irresponsible. I agree. Yeah. And I'm, this might be, of course, the most obvious question, but, you know, would this film have ever been made if Wallace hadn't died so young? You know, would Lipsky's book have been published? Would this film have been made? And is there something then morose about celebrating first the book and now this film? Uh, no way this film would have gotten made. Uh, I don't think. Um, I mean, like the the suicide is, is like essential to the structure of the film for one thing. Um, and like even the shots, I mean, like reviewers have commented on that, like, on the shot of him nap, of, of Wallace napping on the airplane and like the lights playing on his face and it's just so over the top, um, like like s- s- canonizing him sort of, um, yeah yeah. Uh, I do take extreme pleasure in the book that it's based on, um, and uh, and I do feel guilty about it. And there's stuff in there that he did not want reproduced, and Lipsky was a little bit of a twenty five percent weasel in reproducing it. Um, but I'm <laughs> but I'm grateful for it. Um, because like, I think it's, I think writers usually very aggressively protect, um, their, the, the, the illusion that it's easy for them. Um, and to have, and to, to have this in the world, I think is really valuable because it, because it, he makes it clear it's totally not. Do all writers do that? Or is that a particular uh, male writer particularly thing? male. I feel like I've heard a lot of women writers saying like, I work really hard every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't, is this just like a, is it an older trope? Is it's it? It's a modernist thing. I think it's a modernist yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. And, and I mean, and like men, especially I think, I think still buy into the, the sort of myth of the modernist genius. Well, and it seems like David Foster Wallace's death and his, uh, all of, especially an in infinite jest as I can gather from this film, <laughs> um, this this kind of mythos of the decline of America and um, and how the the young person's mind and spirit and and the corruption of of potential or blah 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 you know all of these things it so plays into this mythos with him dying you know so it is you know it's impossible to see how this film and how that book how Lipsky's book. Um, could be made unless that mm-hmm. had been fulfilled, right? Yeah. That that somehow this this man made all of these statements, and they were basically like uh, foreshadowing his own demise, and 
And that's what makes it even more powerful now, even though he became very famous um, because of the book when he was alive. But um, but it seems like it, it has already escalated, you know, um, into I, this mythos. I think the film is also has this moralistic or educational dimension about it. It's just so, so weird that in order to be a good writer, you have to have good discipline. You have to write three to four hours a day. I'm not saying that you, ha- you don't have to work hard to become a good writer, but it's like, oh, writing is just based on meritocracy. That's America. <laughs> So that's the spirit of the film. That's that's something that I was just like, oh my god, this is crazy. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's nothing. I mean, there's not. There's nothing radical about the film at all. <laughs> uh, it's. I mean, and and it, and and I think the biggest reason why it got made is because it 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 serves to reinforce this trope of the of the like suicidal artist or whatever, which I find gross. Yeah. Oh, can I say one thing? Absolutely. I just want to go on the record as saying I was furious that. Uh, Wallace's pit bulls were cast as labs. Oh my god! Yeah, he loved them, and they were rescues, and they were like finicky but cool. And and my friend runs a pit bull rescue foundation, so I just wanted to like be like, yeah. uh, that's Poor not pits. cool. Yeah. Poor pits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's a good note to end on. Um, so yeah, simple the, for the whole film. The end of the tour is getting all kinds of praise. Maybe we've asked some good questions today, or maybe we've. Uh, ushered in the backlash. I don't know. The end of the tour opened today at Film Scene. It'll continue playing throughout this weekend and into next week. For a complete list of showtimes, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org, to learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and longstanding role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City, please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Catherine, thanks so much for being here. So glad to be here. Chong Min, you know it's a pleasure as always. Likewise. <laughs> Michael, it was wonderful having you with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next week. <laughs>